You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. If you have your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 12. As Stuart said, we're going to spend some time in the Word and then we're going to have an opportunity for you to respond tonight with communion, with worship at the end and just pray that God is is preparing your heart for what he has for you tonight. Of course, last week, if you were here, we were in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and we saw that section of scripture that's probably very familiar to you. The, The story of David and Bathsheba, the story of David because of the lust of his heart. David because of his idolatry, because he wasn't content with his God. Because he wasn't content with the things that God had given him. He wanted more. And he went and he took that which wasn't his. And so it wasn't only lust, it was theft. And it wasn't only theft, it was murder. As he had to cover up his sin by killing Uriah, the the husband of Bathsheba. And so this seemingly innocent look at a beautiful woman, then turned into adultery. It it turned into the the stealing, the robbing of another man's wife, which then turned into murder because David was unwilling to confess his sin to God. And David hid his sin for about a year. In fact, he would write about it in Psalm 51, how his bones literally ached because he knew that God was aware of his sin, He knew that God saw it all, but he wasn't able, he wasn't willing to come to a place of just absolute repentance from it. He was trying to hide it. And it says in verse 27 that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what anybody else thought. It doesn't matter what Joab thought who tried to cover up his sin. It didn't matter what any of his officials thought because, I mean, this is King David and he can really do no wrong. It didn't matter what Bathsheba thought. It didn't matter what any of his concubines and wives thought. What mattered is what God said. This thing that David did displeased the Lord. That's it. That's the bottom line. It displeased God. And you guys, that's what our sin does. It displeases the Lord. That's the major result of sin, is that it puts us out of fellowship with God. And that's why God became a man. He didn't just clothe himself in humanity. He became a man. The ultimate sacrifice. And God came and he took the punishment for sin that we deserved. This sin that David committed is under the blood of Jesus Christ, even though it happened a thousand years before the cross. David would look forward to the cross, and we're going to see that tonight. The big idea in 2 Samuel chapter 12, as we move out of the sin and into the confession, into this period of repentance, the big idea here is that God restores sinners but not without sincere confession and painful consequences. God restores sinners. We're all sinners. Maybe some of you are involved in major sin right now that you need to repent of, that you need to confess, that you need to deal with the way David deals with his sin. And maybe you're going to have a Nathan moment tonight. But maybe it isn't so much the big sin, it isn't this huge thing, but it's just been the fact that you really haven't been in fellowship with God. You're really not in communion with Him. Whatever it may be in your life, God wants to restore you. 
But he can't do that without confession. To confess means to agree with God. It means that you are agreeing that the thing that you've done, the things that you have done are wrong, they're displeasing to God, and they've put you outside of fellowship with Him. You agree with Him about that. And so you're basically saying to God, God, you are right, I'm wrong. I confess it to you. I agree with you about what you say about this. It isn't right. It doesn't matter what culture says about this. It doesn't matter what anyone says, but what you have said about it. And you have said that this is sin and you're displeased by it. And so I confess it to you. And know this, you guys, that even with that confession, there will be painful consequences to your sin. And we're going to see those tonight. God restores sinners. He wants to restore you, but not without sincere confession and painful consequences. And so as we move out of chapter 11, and we see that God is displeased with David's sin. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And you remember Nathan from chapter 7. Nathan is a prophet of the Lord. And Nathan is faithful to bring news to David on more than one occasion that David may not have wanted to hear. In chapter 7, initially, Nathan was stoked about David's idea to build God a house. And he said, go for it. Do all that's in your heart. And then he went home and as He's getting ready for bed, and as he lays down, the Lord says to him, Hey, you spoke too soon. That wasn't my will. That's David's will. You need to go back. You need to tell him that this isn't from me. And so Nathan went back, and he delivered that difficult news. He had to eat a little bit of crow to do that. Hey, David, I know I told you earlier, do all that's in your heart. Yeah, I was wrong. Sorry. No house for you. No temple. Done deal. And now he's going to come to David again, this time with an even more difficult message. This mission that God sends Nathan on, this isn't easy. We've got to put ourselves into the story. Nathan is at David's mercy. If David wants to kill Nathan right here, he can do it. And oftentimes, messengers and prophets would be killed by kings because they didn't like what they said. They call him on the carpet, didn't like it, and they kill him. Remember what Herod did with John the Baptist? And so... Nathan is going here with the threat of his own life. He, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And the Lord sends Nathan on a mission to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And so this confrontation, he begins it with a story, which I think is a great idea. He illustrates his point, and we could probably learn from this as we confront people, as we have to challenge people. He does a great job here of illustrating his point. He says there were two men in a city. One was rich, the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so the scene is set. There's a poor man, a rich man. The poor dude's got one little sheep. He's been tending this sheep for a long time. I mean, this thing is like a pet. It's like a daughter to him. Seems a little weird. Seems like these people that, you know, take their dogs in for manicures and stuff. But be that as it may, this is a guy that really likes 
this particular sheep. This is his pet sheep. He loves it. The rich man's got flocks all over the place. Somebody comes to his house and Jewish hospitality, when people would come to your home, you would feed them. You would take care of them. And he didn't want to use any of his flock, even though he had numerous sheep to choose from. He chooses to take the one sheep that this guy has. He steals it from him and offers it to this traveler. And David hears this story. And David being a shepherd, David having that background, understanding how a shepherd would get close to his sheep and understanding that this was wrong, that this was theft, that this was absolute selfishness. David, in the midst of his sin, becomes angry. And know this, you guys, that in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion toward God, you can become angry at sin. And how many preachers have pounded their fists against sin while doing the same thing? How many times have you said something to your children and and just felt that arrow pierce your heart because you know that you are guilty of the same thing? How many times have, have you judged somebody maybe at work or in your family and the Lord speaks to your heart and says, what are you so angry about? You're guilty of the very same thing. And it's possible to be in that place of sin and yet have your heart so calloused and so hardened to it that you don't even recognize that you're out of fellowship with God. And that was David. He becomes angry. His anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold... According to Exodus 22.11, David, in the midst of his sin, also didn't forget the word. And you can be in sin, you can be in rebellion toward God, and be quoting scripture, and be going to church, and be seemingly right where you need to be. David doesn't forget what he knows. He says, you need to restore fourfold. Exodus 22.11 talks about the man that kills someone's livestock needs to restore it fourfold. David knew the law. David knew God. And he's pronouncing this judgment upon a man because his heart was hardened to his own sin. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so the confrontation. Nathan starts off with a, with a story, with an illustration David is so angry over this, he can barely contain himself. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Simple message. You are the man. And instantly, David knew what he meant. All the pieces sort of came together. You can imagine how it just sort of all would have come to clarity in his mind. The whole story and the sheep and stealing and taking the one lamb and thinking about Uriah and how he had done that to him and how he had even murdered him. And his heart would have been broken. You are the man, David. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. There's no question it was God that did this. He pulled David out of the sheepfold. He was the least of his brothers. Little scrawny guy. They didn't even bother to call him to come and be interviewed by Samuel. I mean, this was the Lord. And all these times that Saul tried to kill him, and we've talked about that many times, that there's no good reason why Saul couldn't kill him except the Lord was protecting him. I mean, Saul's a warrior. If he wanted to kill David, I think he should have been able to. 
God was protecting him. And so Nathan is reminding David of this. God called you, David. God protected you, David. God provided for you, verse 8. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. David, I provided for you. I wanted to be your sustenance. And yet your heart wanted something you didn't have because it wasn't content with me. See, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you want things above God, when you exalt things or people above the living God. And that's what David had done. David, I would have given you everything. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this Son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. And so David is confronted with his sin, and David is going to confess his sin, but God is letting him know that there will be consequences for his sin, that there will be a sword in his house. That means his house will be divided, that his family will be terrorized because of his sin. And that's exactly what happens, because his sons looked at David and they didn't respect him. They saw that he was a man who exalted his own pleasure above God. He was a man who wanted his own way instead of God's way and they followed in his footsteps. And this prophecy will come to pass as David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, all will die by the sword each one of them. And even his son Absalom will turn his back on David and divide David's kingdom and stab his own father in the back and actually sleep with David's concubines on the rooftop of David's palace in in just absolute spite to his father because he hated him. And we're going to look at that and the reasons why that happened because David was an absolutely horrible father. And it started with his moral failure, but it also had to do with the fact that he wouldn't deal with sin in his own house. This sword would divide the house of David. It would terrorize his family. What started off as just a glance at a beautiful woman, seemingly harmless, but he took it the next step and he brought her to his home and he lusted after her and he used his power and his position to take advantage of her. And he impregnated her. And then he tried to cover it up. And when that didn't work, he actually went as far to murder Uriah. Because he wouldn't deal with his sin. And it is going to be the ruin of his family. And know this, you guys. That your sin has major repercussions. Our sin does not only affect us. It affects our family. It affects those whom are watching us looking to us to be a gospel influence in their life, and it will terrorize you. This confrontation turns into confession. It says in verse 13, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's two short sentences in this passage that really kind of sum up the entire 
story where David is told by Nathan, you are the man. And here where David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, in the Hebrew, this sentence here, I have sinned against the Lord, is only two words. Essentially, I've sinned. It's not long. It's not drawn out. It isn't that involved. It's just a simple admission of guilt, a simple confession to God, and that's all he wants from you. It's all he wants from me. It's just to confess, to admit, to agree with God. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And so this confession... David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. He's, he's covered it up. And you don't need to turn there unless you would like to. But in Psalm 32, we read a psalm of David after his sin and after his confession. And listen to what he says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he. Happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or charge to the account of iniquity. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not charge iniquity. He doesn't hold it against you and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. Though through my groaning all the day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The, the sin in David's life actually began to affect him physically. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And so now David transitions from talking about the Lord dealing with him to how he's going to deal with those in his own life and, and how God's going to use this in the life of others. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so David's psalm of just recognizing that, man, it is a blessing not to have your sins charged to your account. And, and I don't know if all of you have experienced that. But if you haven't, if you don't know what that's like to not be under the guilt of your own sin, to not feel like all of the things that you have done, that you know are wrong because we're all born with a conscience. We all have a sense of right and wrong. It's part of the general revelation of God that he's given to each one of us. But you can sear that conscience. You, you can begin to become jaded to your sin and not really care about it. But there's this sense that you're dragging this weight behind you. And David carried that for a year. And he said it, it was absolutely terrorizing him. 
physically. His bones grew brittle. He, he just felt like physically he was drying up. And it was when he confessed his sin, it was when he got right with God, that he could let go of that burden, that he could let go of that guilt. Maybe you're in that place tonight where you just need to give it to the Lord. If you've never confessed your sin to him, man, I encourage you to do that tonight. If you're a Christian and, and yet you've been living with unconfessed sin, God wants to do that work in you. God wants to cleanse you. God wants to restore you. And so this confession that David makes to the Lord, he then is made aware in a very tangible way, the consequence of his own sin. It says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. And notice here that this was God's doing. Sometimes we, we want to explain away the sovereign hand of God. Have you ever noticed how we like to do that as Christians? Well, God didn't really create this, and, and it wasn't God's doing. It was just part of sin, and, and, and this happened, and that happened, and, and it's the result of our own bad decisions. Well, sometimes that's true, but we need not explain away when the Bible says God caused this to happen, and sometimes God does that. This was the Lord's working here, an innocent child, a child who had nothing to do with this other than he or she was conceived because of David and Bathsheba's sin. This child didn't have anything to do with it. But under the sovereign hand of God, God brings judgment upon David through this child. And the Lord struck the child. Notice that Uriah's wife doesn't even use the name Bathsheba because the Holy Spirit here is wanting us to know that David stole Uriah's wife. It's a very pointed message to us that God doesn't even recognize Bathsheba as David's wife. This is still Uriah's wife in the, in the eyes of the Lord. Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. This was under the providence of God. And David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so David is not going to give up. He's praying for this child. He's fasting. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. They're thinking, he's not in a good place emotionally and mentally. He might hurt himself, he might hurt us. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall return, but he shall not return to me. And so the consequence, this child becomes ill, ill to the point where it dies. And David cries out to the Lord and he prays and he fasts for this child. And yet God didn't heed his prayer. 
And this shows us that prayer and fasting, you guys, the purpose of it is not to change God's mind. The purpose of it is to align ourselves with the will of God. It's not to somehow twist God's arm or to make him do something that he didn't intend to do or have him not do something that he did intend to do. God has a plan and his plan will come to pass. And it was God's will that this child die to make a bold statement to David that there are consequences for sin. You guys, we need to know that. That when we choose to sin, there will be consequences and God doesn't free us from them. And so people that have abused their bodies with drugs and alcohol, unless God chooses to do a miracle, they're going to deal with the consequences of their sin. And if a teenage girl chooses to be promiscuous and she gets pregnant, it's not like God's going to take the child back. You're going to deal with that. Now you're going to have a child in your childhood. And you're going to deal with the consequences of that. Or an STD. Or just the emotional damage that promiscuity brings. And and God doesn't just miraculously take those from us. We deal with that. A woman who chooses to go and to abort her baby will deal with the consequences of that. There will be major emotional damage. And and all of these people that talk about pro-choice and talk about the fact that a woman should be able to choose... They never tell you of the emotional damage and the toll that it takes on a woman, not only physically, but emotionally for the rest of her life. And it isn't that God doesn't forgive and God doesn't restore, but you can't take that from somebody. Supposedly, James Dobson sat down with Ted Bundy and and prayed with him to receive Christ before he was executed in Florida. But guess what? All those families that Ted Bundy terrorized, they didn't just automatically get their kids back. They didn't automatically get their joy back. They, they deal with the repercussions of it. And as Ted Bundy sat there and he prayed, when it was over with, it wasn't like the repercussions of his sin were done. He was forgiven by God. He was cleansed. But he still had all the nightmares, all the effects of his own sin to deal with. And so let that be a deterrent for us, you guys. Let us learn from David. That, that sin, yes, enjoyable for a moment. There's no question. There's no question. Some of you single people, some of you younger people, there's no question that sex outside of marriage is enjoyable. You don't have to be married to enjoy sex. It, it, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. But you deal with the emotional baggage. You deal with all the repercussions. So you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? The guy that goes and gets drunk and gets in his car and drives home. And man, he had a phenomenal time. This was so fun. What a great time partying. And he slams into another car and kills the whole family. Was it worth it? He's going to deal with that. Those words that you say at the time, man, they feel good. I'm going to get this off my chest. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. And you yell and you scream and you just tear into somebody. And it feels good for the moment, but then you see the damage it does. And you deal with with that in your own life and and the guilt you feel because you can never take those words back. Was it worth it? It's enjoyable for the time. Nobody questions that. Let's get that on the table. It's fun. It's exciting. It feels good. Any sin that you can think of, when somebody offends you, when somebody says something to you that angers you, it feels good to give them a piece of your mind or to deck them. I mean, there's no question. It feels good. 
for the moment. Unless they're tougher than you and they beat you up, then it doesn't feel good. But you know what I mean. I mean, it feels good when somebody cuts you off, drive by them, give them the bird, you know, and then you forget, oh yeah, my bumper sticker says, uh, Jesus is the way, you know. And, and all of a sudden, this is guilt, like, Lord, why? Why couldn't I have just let that go? It means nothing. He's an idiot. That's all there is to it. Why couldn't I just let him drive away in his idiocy? But no, we got to do something about it. And then you deal with it. Because your kids are watching you, and, and you're ruining your witness, your wife or your husband. Typically, it's your wife, because, you know, it's guys that do that kind of thing. Typically, how often do you hear about road rage with women? It's, you know, they're normally the ones that cause road rage. But it's normally the guys that are responding to it, right? I mean, you hear these stories about guys that are shooting each other and fighting in the middle of the freeway. And it feels good at the moment, but there's consequences. And for David, there were major consequences to his sin. It cost him the life of his child. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there, and neither does your story. As we read in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Blessed is the man whom the Lord covers his sin. And that's what God does with David. No, the repercussions don't go away. The consequences don't disappear. But God is going to restore David. And we see the comfort that is brought in verses 24 to 31. It says, then David comforted Bathsheba. Notice, for the first time, she's called Bathsheba. There's restoration here. She was the wife of Uriah. David did steal her. He was wrong in that. He was sinful in that. But now there's restoration, and she's his wife. God doesn't say, hey, I want you to divorce Bathsheba. I want you to send her back. No, the damage has been done. So now you need to take care of her. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her, which is an Old Testament way of saying he had sex with her. So she bore a son. And so God brings restoration, not only in giving Bathsheba to him as as a wife and recognizing that and putting his approval on that. And he called his name Solomon, which some scholars believe that the name Solomon means a replacement. This was a replacement. Because remember that God had told David in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, that his throne would reign forever and ever. And so this is God's way of saying, I'm keeping my promise to you. Even though you were unfaithful to me, I'm going to keep my promise to you. You will have a son through whom your throne will continue on. This is my replacement for you. In fact, I'm going to bring the Messiah. I'm going to bring your Redeemer, David, the one that will redeem your sin is going to come through you. I mean, I think if I was God, I'd say, you know what, David, you just totally blew it. You've sort of ruined the model here. This isn't going to work out. I'm going to find somebody else to, to bring the Messiah through. But no, God is faithful to his promise. He called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And and literally the the name Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. And so Solomon, also known as Jedidiah, was loved by God because of his father David. And because God had put his hand of favor upon David and his family. And even though there would be mass consequences, and even though it would be a tough road 
for David, there would be restoration. And that's what God wants to do in our life, you guys. He wants to restore you. He's a God of restoration. He restored David by giving him a son. He also restores David by giving him back his kingdom. And we're going to see that in verses 26 through the end of the chapter. He gives him back his kingdom. Think about this. Saul sinned in a much less grievous matter than David. And yet God took Saul's kingdom from him. Saul had pride. Certainly Saul was an idolater. Saul turned his back on God. But from a public standpoint, it wasn't nearly as conspicuous as David's sin. And it wasn't out and out blatant murder in a deceptive way, hiding his sin. And yet God took Saul's kingdom. You remember that in 1 Samuel. It says that God no longer would deal with Saul and he took his kingdom from him. It's a tragic verse. And he gave it to David. But here's David sinning in a major way. Big time sin. This isn't little sin. This isn't white lie sin. This isn't like fudging on your taxes a little bit sin. This is major sin. This is sleeping with another man's wife, impregnating her, murdering her husband, and then trying to cover it up for a year. I mean, this is a big deal. And yet God doesn't take David's kingdom. He restores it to him. What was the difference? Repentance. Confession. Think about Judas and Peter. Both of them denied the Lord. Both of them turned their back on Jesus. And yet Judas went away in his own pride, in his own rebellion, and wouldn't deal with his sin before God. And yet Peter dealt with his sin. And God restored him. And Jesus came to him and and gave him that place of ministry and that place of leadership in the early church and said, Peter, go and feed my sheep. And he didn't hold it against him. And he would have done the same with Judas, except that Judas didn't deal with his sin. And so the choice is ours. Are we going to deal with our sin? Are we going to hide it and cover it up and not want to admit it? God restores sinners, but not without sincere confession and painful consequences. God restores the kingdom to David. It says, Now Joab fought against Reba of the people of Ammon and took the royal city And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba, fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And so David was restored by God. And you guys, tonight as we worship the Lord, as we just close our time together in worship, we want to invite you to confess your sin before the Lord. If there's things in your life that you have not dealt with yet, then this is your opportunity to get right with God tonight. Because there's no sin that God can't forgive. I mean, that's clear with David, right? Jesus, who would come through the line of David, wants to restore you. He wants to heal you. He wants to redeem you tonight. And that's what communion is all about. And so as you approach the table, ask God to search your heart. Confess your sin before him. Get right with God tonight. Worship him in light of that. I love that in verse 20 that it says, After David 
heard the news about his child that died. He had prayed, he had fasted, he had begged God, and the child died. It says David got up, he washed himself, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. No matter what's going on in your life tonight, God's worthy of your worship. Maybe there's some things in your life that are absolutely terrorizing you because of sin in your past. And you don't really feel like worshiping God. But you know what? He's forgiven you. He loves you. He's restored you. He's worthy of your worship. Maybe tonight you just are in awe of the fact that he's forgiven you. You're just reminded of of all of the sin that God has cleansed from your life. And he's, he's worthy to be worshiped in light of that. We ought to be excited about that, you guys. That he doesn't hold our sin against us. How amazing is that? That as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know that? If you do, it ought to create a sense of worship, a sense of exaltation, a sense of standing in awe of God. And as we started the evening off tonight saying, when was the last time you stood in awe of God? Well, here's your opportunity. Stand in awe of him simply for the fact that he's forgiven you. Because you're a David. You screwed your life up. I mean, you couldn't have screwed it up anymore had you set out to do it. And yet, he didn't give up on you. He's never turned his back on you. He loves you. He wants to restore you. To fellowship with him. He wants to restore those things that you have lost. Your peace, your joy, your fulfillment, the freedom from guilt. He wants to restore all of that. And will you receive that tonight? Will you receive the comfort, the same comfort that David received, looking forward to the cross? You receive looking back at the cross. I want to close by reading Psalm 51. I want you to just listen to the words of David. He wrote this psalm after he was confronted by Nathan. And listen to what he says. And make this your prayer tonight. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Make that your prayer tonight. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities." Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David says, God, if you will forgive me, I'll share you and your grace and your love with others.
He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. David says, God, if you'll forgive me, I'll worship you. I'll sing to you. I'll make you the passion of my life. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David says, Lord, if you'll forgive me, I'll give my life to you. I'll sacrifice everything for you. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, they shall offer bulls on your altar. David, speaking of sacrifice, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that we find in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who took a cross and bore your sin and your shame and exclaimed, It is finished. The work is done. That's something to be excited about, you guys. That's something to tell other people about, as David said. It's something to sing about and to worship him for. And it's something worth sacrificing for. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, that our reasonable act of worship is by offering our life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That's what he wants from you, is your life totally and completely surrendered to him. Do that tonight. Worship him. Surrender to him. Confess to him. Come and partake of communion as as you're led. We're going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes just worshiping the Lord. Don't lose this opportunity. Make it real in your heart tonight. Respond to the word of God. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.